When you're looking for a new computer or need help with one you already own, call 231-8000 and Madison Computer Works will get things up and running for you. Madison Computer Works, computers that work for you. Welcome to another podcast. It's FliesOffice.com brought to you by our friends at the Operating Engineers, Local 139, also the Madison Teamsters, Local 695. Joining us now from the Milwaukee area service and hospitality workers, it is Peter Rickman. Peter, good morning. Good morning, Sly. Thanks for having me on. Well, some congratulations are in order. I'll play a clip from uh, Wisconsin Public Radio about the very story we're going to talk about. I have not heard. No, that's not the clip. All right, we're going to have to fix this. Okay, here we go. The workers are employed by Delaware North, the Green Bay Packers food service provider. Many game day positions at Lambeau are staffed by volunteers, but Delaware North employs around 70 vendors in the concourses who sell beverages. Over 80% of the vendors who voted were in favor of unionizing. That's according to Peter Rickman. He's a Milwaukee-based organizer who helped them through the process. This victory was an overwhelming validation of the strength and unity that vendors have built, a showing of solidarity that when working people stick together, we can fight and win. He says the workers' next step is to choose a bargaining committee. In a statement, Delaware North said it looks forward to negotiating a contract with its Green Bay employees. Joe Schultz, Wisconsin Public Radio. Now, this is tremendous news. How did this all come to fruition? I'm sorry, Sly. You just you got me all turned around there. You made me listen to my own voice on radio <laughs> to start this interview. Is this, is this how you get the goods from people? You throw oh, them off like this? Oh, wait till you hear the Nikki Haley clips I'm going to play for you today. <laughs> Oh, geez, from bad to worse on a Monday morning. (laughs) All right, so how did this all come to fruition? Well, there are several different strains to to tie together here, Uh, but it absolutely has to start with the vendors themselves. Uh, The the folks who have done this work at Lambeau Field, in some cases for decades, are part of what creates this unforgettable experience at the best football stadium in the world. Uh, and Packer fans obviously are second to none uh, when it comes to not just supporting their team, but really getting into that, that fan experience at, at their stadium. And so the vendors, I think, have always felt like they are part of creating that in a way that elevates, um, you know, the, the role that they play beyond just, you know, someone working a job on six given Sundays in a year. And when the company started flexing its muscles the way that all companies do because they have the power. Workers said, wait a minute, is this the way that it has to be? And I think that's a lesson that everyone listening should learn is that, you know, without a union, the boss has all the power. And the only way that workers can have any power is when we come together and organize through a union. When Delaware North cut the commission rate for these vendors in half and threatened their job security, they recognized that they didn't have any power to do anything about it. And so they said, we got to figure something out here. Uh, you know, leaving the jobs that they love wasn't really an option. Organizing to balance the power with the boss was the way that they chose. And some of the vendors who work at Lambeau Field and some former vendors who worked at Lambeau Field are also members of our union at Pfizer Forum. And these folks uh, are tremendously proud of the union they've built. They're uh, impressed, I think, with what's possible with a strong union and a strong union contract. And they said, you know, we should build 
a union up at Lambeau Field the way that we have uh, at Pfizer Forum. And so we started working with them. Uh, and these vendors have built this member-driven, democratic, worker-centered union that is characteristic of what we're doing here at MASH to transform the hospitality industry from the south side of Milwaukee all the way up I-43 to Lambeau Field. So how do the people that are vendors, I mean, how do they make their living outside the work they do at Lambeau? I bet there are a lot of people that think that the, the vendors just do that for fun, maybe to just be at the game, that sort of thing. Uh, is, is this their only livelihood? How does that work? There's nothing quite as fun as freezing your ass off <laughs> on a Sunday, standing hey, in a listen, concrete tunnel. Listen, it's Wisconsin, right? We we take you know we're, we're not like Minnesota where we build a dome. Chicago's <laughs> thinking, come on now, this is the Upper Great Lakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we we fish through ice and all that. You grew but, up. You, know, in, the, you grew up in the shadow of Lambeau Field in Nina, Wisconsin. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, we whenever I. Do a, a visit up there to, to Lambeau with uh, with vendors. I, I find my brother and say hi to him. He's a season ticket holder. Uh, you know, it's, it's part of who we are growing up there. And yeah, I think for a lot of the vendors, uh, you know, it's it's the it's a great experience to be inside of Lambeau Field. It is a cool job. They love what they do. As you know, I said at the outset here, Sly. These folks value what they bring to creating this world class fan experience at the best football stadium in the world. But they're not there watching the game. They're in concrete tunnels, uh, slinging beer, working their butts off throughout uh, throughout the game from, you know, two hours before kickoff, sometimes even earlier, uh, to to, you know, uh, late in the game. Uh, they are they're working their their tails off to make a decent living. And so to answer your question, Sly, there's no one answer. It's a it's a really cool part of the vendor world. It's a it's a great part of uh, much of the hospitality industry. And there's folks who are there as, as retired machinists and teachers. There's folks who are working a second job to make sure that they can take care of their families. There's folks who are uh, you know people who uh, knit together multiple part time hospitality industry jobs. And you know there's some folks who drive up from Milwaukee who uh, also work, like I said, at Pfizer Forum, putting this all together here. There's professional vendors who work their way across different uh, venues. And, you know, that's what has brought folks together here is this idea that the only way any single one of them could have the power they need to deliver on the compensation they want to have to protect their job, to fix what they don't like about the job, to protect what they do love about it, is by uniting and, and building the strength and power of a union. Uh, so across their diverse backgrounds, we've come together to form one strong, powerful organization that can square off against the boss eye-to-eye, toe-to-toe, and sit down at a bargaining table as equals to negotiate a legally binding contract. It's frankly what every single working person is listening to this podcast and beyond deserves to have, too. When I first met you 12 years ago, when the whole Act 10 thing happened, I mean, unions were— That whole thing. Re- yeah, that whole thing. That whole— <laughs> Uh, uh, that was an exhilarating moment at times and, and a real tragedy in others. But let's face it, unions were really battered in, you know, 2011, 2012. And I'll say it, uh, oh. Barack Obama was a major disappointment when it came to unions. Not that they, he didn't appoint some good members of the NLRB and that sort of thing. But in general, he did not make it a priority. Um, things were beaten down and it kind of looked like 
maybe unions were never going to make a comeback. Young people really weren't thinking about them. But I don't know if it was the pandemic. I don't know what has happened that has given people a sense of hope that they can work with others to raise their families' living standards. What do you think happened? Well, Barack Obama came to the White House as a product of his time. You know, the the era of neoliberalism that began in the late 70s, uh, that included as one of its fundamental pillars, uh, anti-unionism, that we've come to see in, you know, the, the Koch brothers and the Scott Walker types. Uh, there was a Democratic Party version of that, too, where unions were not uh, a constituency, and the working class was not the center of their politics. We saw the same thing in, in Bill Clinton. And frankly, in a previous era, you could say the same thing about Joe Biden. But someone who now proudly proclaims himself the most pro-union president, at least since Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and seems to be living up to that, uh, didn't you know have some sort of conversion on the road to Damascus or the White House, as it were, Sly. It's because a real live workers movement has been building. I'm not one of those kind of people who said, you know, when things get bad enough, then folks will, you know, snap out of it and wake up and realize. But the reality here, Sly, is that we are seeing today a rising workers movement that actually has long persisted in the hearts, if not the heads and hands of working class people across the state in this country. Unions have always had a favorable reputation amongst working class people because it's the only way we get a fair shake. The only way we can balance the power with the boss class. Um, But of course, in the last 10 years, that's blown up. And I think it's a combination of people experiencing the income inequality economy the explosion of low-wage work, the decline of living standards, the total decimation of the middle class, an erosion of what characterized that golden period of the middle 20th century and unionization and an expansion of the role of government, you know, built something that started to produce broadly shared prosperity. And no, it wasn't perfect. You know, if uh, you have a skin color different than ours or if you come from a different background, it wasn't necessarily a given, but we were building and expanding and growing that middle class through unions and uh, a positive role of government. And when that flipped around, people started to experience something that they had never seen before, a living standard lower than that of the generation before them. And so I think for people of my generation, I'm a millennial, and people younger in the next generations, what we've seen here is our values. We've grown up with communitarian, solidaristic values. We've seen them under attack, and we've said the only way that we are going to build a democratic and decent and just society for people like us and beyond is if we organize and fight. And that's taken off through things like the Occupy Wall Street movement, which I think had its roots in the Capitol uprising of 2011, the presidential candidacy of Bernie Sanders, where he articulated across two different campaigns, a different view of what society could be like. And people taking over unions who've wanted to fight, you know, instead of the class collaboration efforts of the, you know, 70s, 80s, and 90s, which was defensive uh, almost by necessity, we've seen fighting leaders like Sean Fain and Sean O'Brien with the auto workers and the Teamsters, respectively, and the Starbucks workers and the Amazon workers saying, you know, the only way we are going to get what we need and what we deserve is by organizing and fighting whether it's winning NLRB elections or getting out on the strike lines or building a large-scale movement for decent jobs through union contracts. It's a really exciting time. And I'd like to think that we in Wisconsin and in the Madison Uprising of 2011 had a hand in that because we showed people 
the reaction to assaults on our unions and our social rights doesn't need to be passively accepting it. We can and must fight back. And we weren't successful in that moment, but most movements aren't successful right at the outset. It takes time to build and grow. And I think oh. we're seeing those green shoots grow into beautiful forests of collective bargaining unions and uh, victories for working class people for the first time in a generation. Although you notice after the whole Walker thing, no other governor tried doing that. That thing was that whole movement was picking up momentum and between what Ohio voters did. And if we'd had that mechanism, we would have won that. But we didn't have that uh, mechanism. I, I just got to chuckling. I got to thinking about all the good trouble that you've caused in Wisconsin over the last uh, 12, 13 years and how mad Chief Flynn was at you for closing the uh, North Avenue <laughs> Bridge. Uh, <laughs> Well, Sly, I think you can connect those things together in, in 2011 and 2012 and kind of a, a resistance and fight against those who were trying to complete an assault on, on workers' rights. Uh, and and what, spurred, uh, what, what was spurred by that around the country, and then moving into not just a defensive fight against something, but fights for things. And I, you know, and maybe this is my own rose-colored glasses and thinking that, you know, as, as any of us are, as individuals want to do. But, you know, going from the fight in 2011 to then in 2015 and 2016, winning a landmark agreement to ensure that jobs in the downtown redevelopment of Milwaukee uh, would be good union jobs for hospitality workers. We took on the Wall Street and high finance real estate billionaires that took uh, ownership of the bucks and said, no, we need a fair shake for working class people in the hospitality industry. And we won. And that has grown to deliver on the largest private sector union organizing victory in a couple of generations in Wisconsin, and something that then has captured the imagination of people elsewhere, so that we've drawn more and more service sector working class people into this organization and into this movement uh, that wouldn't have happened without a fight back in 2011. But by the same token, resistance and fighting against something is no substitute for also articulating a positive affirmative vision for how we can transform society and making it real with that hard-nosed, clear-eyed, grassroots organizing that builds people power. Well, I, will, I think you can draw those lines of history. So I, I don't mean to do euphoric recall here, but I'll never forget going to the concourse right after Walker dropped the bomb. Me, you know, all the union leaders had a press conference, and it was like a wake. You know, I've been to happier wakes, okay? Yeah. Especially the <laughs> Irish ones. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So it was like a wake. And then I was walking up towards State Street, and I, I, a couple people were talking amongst themselves about what was going on. And as I watched you parade with people up, State Street, the TAs, TAAs, um, someone cynically said to me, oh, like, that's going to stop Scott Walker. Well, the truth <laughs> is, that was a spark in the beginning of a movement like no other. You got to start somewhere. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's, there's been this sea change over the last 10 years, and I think part of it is people working people generally, activists especially recognizing that, you know, we can and must fight and we don't have to be afraid of the solidaristic communitarian values and we don't have to be afraid of talking about unions because 
people like unions. And when folks see working people more generally organizing and fighting against something and for something and having a shot at winning, they certainly see it as much better than sitting back and taking it like we have, you know, in the, in the generations previous. And so, you know, I, I think that that was a, that was a signal moment. And, you know, those who continued to build this struggle here in Wisconsin over the last 10 plus years, I think have a great deal of which to be proud. And certainly the work is just beginning here to build something new and more powerful that can produce several generations more of an organized fighting and winning working class. Uh, And I think that's the thing that for me has been the most important about what's happened up at Lambeau Field. Uh, Just like with the Paps Theater group workers here in Milwaukee, it's different groups of people saying, hey, when we see workers organizing, fighting and winning through unions, we want some of that too. And whether it was the, you know, uh, Gen Z types of the Paps Theater group organizing, fighting and winning, or the, you know, older blue collar northeastern Wisconsin types up at Lambeau Field saying, hey, we got to do that too. It shows that there is a broad spectrum movement here of working class people well, that's ha- taking on the fight for something and winning. We're back at SliceOffice.com brought to you by Madison Computer Works and also our friends at Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Fort Atkinson. Joining us again, Peter Rickman, Milwaukee Area Service and Hospitality Workers. Uh, before the uh, right before the strike and before things were settled with the three automakers, one of these professors from the University of Maryland, Peter Marici, uh, was on the Fox Business Channel. And here's what he said about the UAW going on strike. Is this strike all about wages and inflation, Peter, or is it something more? Well, it's really something more. I mean, the automakers are going to be making more electric vehicles. That employs many fewer workers. So in some ways, the UAW seems to be looking to get a big payout now, figuring they're going to lose a lot of jobs anyway. They talk about creating another jobs bank where laid-off workers would be paid, even if they're not working. That's really not viable. You know, what these guys are asking for is a more than doubling of the labor costs at a UAW plant. And already Ford and General Motors are at a $10,000 disadvantage to Tesla and the leading Chinese makers of electric vehicles, which, by the way, are very good vehicles and probably better than what GM is putting on the road. So isn't that something? Uh, <laughs> what do you mean, Fly? It's the same thing these anti-union, anti-worker assholes have been saying for decades. But, but he, got, hearing he, the, the he wasn't even wrong in his broader view. He was wrong about the details. The last thing they were looking for was just a short-term payout. As a matter of fact, that agreement angered some of the older workers because they did bring people that had been part of this step program into the fold. I mean, Sean Fain appears to be very forward-looking in this movement. Well, you know, I think one of the things that, as, as someone who studied, you know, to a certain extent, the currents in the auto workers union, uh, you know, the the older workers themselves, the the people who actually reach back to a time when there weren't tiers in the UAW contracts, were amongst the key leaders of the fight to eliminate those tiers and, and bring uh, unity across the board to those contracts because they recognize that the solidarity of the union, the unity and strength on the shop floor all the way through bargaining was contingent upon having everyone sharing uh, in the same way and people shoulder to shoulder 
doing the same work, making the same money, enjoying the same benefits. I just, I, I got to point out here, Sly, you know, when, when, you know, talking chicken heads like that go on <laughs> about, well, the labor costs are higher for the Detroit three, uh, the big three, and they're uncompetitive against Tesla or Chinese automakers. What they're, what they're saying here is we are going to, as a society, accept and even, and, and even promote the idea that production of automobiles or other vehicles uh we we should laud the companies that sweat their labor and pay people less and skimp on health and safety and don't deliver health care and retirement security by right i mean there's nothing to be celebrated about that it should be condemned and every person on television or radio or wherever in the media talking about this whether they're on fox business or msnbc or in the nation uh, or on the pages of jackman should all be saying the same thing Every automaker ought to abide by the same standards. And instead of the Detroit Three, I think one of the most compelling things that Sean Fain is talking about is having a big five, big seven, you know, including the Teslas and the Hondas and the VWs and the uh, Subarus of the world, all sitting at the same bargaining table. And all these automakers should have the same labor cost structure here based upon the same wages, the same benefits. And if they want to compete based upon who can innovate differently or uh, you know, uh, achieve efficiencies in their supply chain or in their manufacturing processes. Great. But no one should be looking to drive down the cost of automobile production and the cost of automobiles to the consumer based upon who can get the best deal, sweat and labor and paying people less than middle class wages without health care, retirement security and safety and decent working conditions in the workplace. So Leonard Leo, the plutocrat who had put, you know, Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas and some of the others on the court, you know, his new uh, his new project is getting Nikki Haley elected president. I want you to I'm going to play a couple clips of her and what she said as she's running for president. Well, I think that's uh, it tells you that when you have the most pro-union president and he touts that he is um, emboldening the unions, this is what you get. And I'll tell you who pays for it is the taxpayers. You know, here, from what I understand, the union is asking for a 40 percent raise. Um, you know, the companies have come back with a 20 percent raise. You know, the problem is this is going to we're all going to suffer from this. This is going to cost things to go up. And, you know, this is going to last a while. But, you know, when you have a president that's constantly saying, go union, go union, this is what you get. The unions get emboldened and then they start asking for things that, you know, that companies have a tough time doing. So how did that turn out? I mean, her her uh, her projection that somehow the American people were going to be repulsed by this didn't turn out. Well, it turns out that, you know, during the UAW strike, something like 70 to 80 percent of the population, depending on, you know, certain background characteristics, uh, supported the auto workers, supported the strike, supported the union. And, you know, I don't think that's, a surprise to anyone with a pulse and a pair of decent ears who isn't constantly flapping their gums, none of which describes Nikki Haley. Uh, the reality for most working people is when auto workers win, the rest of us win. And, you know, it's, it's pretty characteristic of these right-wing blowhards um, to talk about people first and foremost as taxpayers. But we're not. We're working people. We're citizens. And those are just as much a part of who we are and more so, I think, uh, for your ordinary, everyday person than than taxpayer. You know, and and the reality for for working people also is that 
no tax cut is ever going to make up for the erosion of real wages over the past 40 years. Or benefits. Or, yeah, or, 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 or safety standards. And, and, and so on and so forth. Or decent working conditions just generally. Dignity and rights on the job. Uh, for the past 40-some-odd years, those same companies that she's boo-hooing about not being able to afford things have created an imbalance of power. They've cut wages. They've cut benefits. They've made our jobs miserable. And on the back end of that, they've achieved record profits. No, no time uh, uh, since the, you know, the, 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 the Great Depression or the, the era that brought on the Great Depression has there been a more unequal economy. And, Think about that. You know, during the, the last few years, Sly, we've seen record profits, and they've, they've disguised it with this inflation talk. But, you know, it's not as if these auto companies or, or other ones can't afford to do this. And let's be real here. You know, the, the labor cost contribution to the price of an automobile is less than 10 percent. So, you know, the, 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 the cry wolf types of those who say anytime that anything gets better for working people, you know, the, the sky is going to fall, uh, you know, just totally have it wrong. It's when we continue to let the corporate power run rampant to increase corporate profits and create the most unequal economy since the Gilded Age that brought on the Great Depression. That's the thing we have to watch out for. So when working people like the auto workers are winning and we see Teamsters winning with UPS and writers and actors and all that, what it means is that we can start to rebalance this economy and the likes of Nikki Haley are deathly afraid that their brand of anti-worker, anti-government, right-wing revanchist conservatism just no longer is going to win. So they try to throw around the same scare tactic bombs to their base that, you know, will elevate them. And they got to cross their fingers and hope that the people of this country aren't going to reelect the most pro-union president since FDR. Have you had, I don't think it's going to work, Sly. Have you had your breakfast? Have I had my breakfast? Mm-hmm. Uh, no. Okay, Why? good. Because this next clip that I'm going to play, certainly you would lose your breakfast after ah. hearing it. Okay, so here we go. Okay. Do you and would you draw a line, Ambassador, if you were President of the United States, uh, for union jobs versus any jobs? This president clearly does prioritize union jobs. Um, and he's made very clear here that union workers deserve more, that their pay increases have not come close to the success and the money that all of these auto companies have enjoyed. What do you what do you say to that? Well, I'll tell you, in South Carolina as governor, I mean, we were building planes with Boeing. We were building more BMWs than any place in the world. I recruited Mercedes-Benz. I recruited Volvo. We had five international tire companies. But I was a union buster. I didn't want to bring in companies that were unionized simply because I didn't want to have that change the environment in our state. We very much watched out for workers. But the way we watched out for workers was we didn't encourage middlemen between companies and their workers. We encouraged the workers to have that direct communication with them. And so I would always tell our CEOs, it's really important that you let the workers be a part of the solutions with your company. It's really important that if you're going to have them work on a Sunday, you give them notice and let them do that. It's really important that you have family days so that families can see what their love 
loved ones are doing. It's that communication between management and the workers that I think is so important. You put middlemen like a union in there where they are just making money off the workers. I think it's a lose-lose situation. It's a lose for the companies. It's a lose for the workers. And that's why I think it's wrong to embolden the unions. Instead, you should embolden the workers and the communication of their of them having with management. Yeah, she really worked overtime making sure those workers got more holidays. Boy, I tell you, that was right on the top of her list. I cannot believe that she said that quiet part out loud where <laughs> she just acknowledges that the companies will force people to come in on their on Sunday. Which which implies Sly that, you know, the companies have already made workers come in to work on Saturdays. Seven day work week. Uh you know, low wages being dictated by the by the boss. What do they they live in company provided housing too? Is this going to be like the nineteen twenties? Uh, you know, where where you know workers have no rights in South Carolina. Slide. I don't know if you know this, but it's a it's a state with uh, I think top five poverty, bottom five wages, and bottom five living standards. So. You know, Nikki Haley may have the courage of her convictions of hating unions. I fully believe that she does. You know, as a politician, I don't believe that she is, uh, you know, just saying something to uh, appear a certain way. I think she really genuinely believes it. But what she's promoting here is a version of America where corporations and the CEOs who run them and the Wall Street hedge fund and private equity guys who, you know, make their money off of this are going to do great. And the rest of us are going to suffer. And if South Carolina is the model for this country, watch out, hold on to your wallet. Working people, we've always known that, you know, union dues are the price we pay to have a little bit of collective power. And we get it back thousands of times over in decent wages and good health care benefits and retirement security. And so, you know, they're promoting this, this world with low taxes and no unions. That will absolutely decimate what's left of the middle class and prevent us from ever rebuilding that multiracial, broad, broadly shared prosperity version of the country. I think people like you and I would like to see where working people do well and our kids do even better each successive generation. Isn't Nikki it, Haley's got the wrong prescription. Isn't it remarkable uh, that in the state of Wisconsin, we have a United States senator that what, didn't care whether Oshkosh truck built the new line of postal vehicles in Wisconsin or South Carolina, as he sits in that mansion on Lake Winnebago in Oshkosh. Well, you know, I don't think it should surprise anyone that people like Ron Johnson have those, those ideas. They're not loyal to working class Wisconsinites. That's not who elects them anyway. You know, he's a rich guy. It's his money and the other rich guys who donate to his campaign, and that, that's who he's really looking out for. But people like Ron Johnson are not loyal to working folks. You know, they're just looking out for the CEOs who run those companies and are willing to sweat labor, ship jobs, you know, all around the country overseas. You know, they, they're, they're not ever really looking out for people in Oshkosh or anywhere here in Wisconsin. And that kind of behavior, that kind of rhetoric uh, characterizes all too much of the modern-day right-wing Republicans that, you know, unfortunately have slipped their way into office. Thank God we've got a senator like Tammy Baldwin, though, who fights for and and, uh, and, and delivers for, for working-class people here in Wisconsin. And if we had a couple of those kinds of senators, I think that uh, our country would be in a different different place. 
Ron Johnsons of the world are not just traitors who try to subvert our democracy. They're anti-worker, anti-union turds who would just as soon watch, you know, a working person lose their job and lose their livelihood as, you know, a CEO might actually be troubled into, uh, you know, having to, to uh, think about which yacht they're going to sell to uh, to make their well, quarterly payment Mr. on their Rickman, third mansion. I have one disagreement with you there in that last statement. You owe poop an apology. It serves an important purpose. Okay. <laughs> I meant no disrespect. Ron, Ron Johnson serves no discernible purpose that I've been able to ascertain over the last 12 years. Uh, finally, tell me uh, what's going to, how's this whole uh, union going to be built and come to fruition? And how are we going to lift the standards of those workers in Green Bay? Well, one of the things that really defines MASH as an organization of service and hospitality workers is that it's just that. It's an organization of, by, and for workers. We're member-driven, worker-centric, and the vendors themselves are going to nominate and elect a bargaining committee to uh, work with me as their chief negotiator to uh, develop our contract proposals. And before we go to the table to sit down as equals with the company, the members of the union will look it over and vote up or down on whether to approve it. If they want to change uh, those proposals, they'll uh, go through that process. It's a democratic, lowercase d, democratic union. And uh, as we negotiate with the company, the members of that committee will report back to their colleagues they represent and keep everyone abreast so that when we bring a tentative agreement for a first contract back to everyone, uh, when they're set to vote on it, they'll know about not just what's in there, but the compromises and choices that had to be made along the way and the sorts of things that we prioritized and emphasized. Um, and then workers get to vote. This is true in any contract, whether it was the auto workers, the Teamsters, the screen actors, the writers, everything we've seen here over the last few years, the workers get to have the final say on things um, and, and choose whether or not to accept a contract. And that's exactly what will happen with the vendors here. And what I hope, Sly, is that that doesn't conclude the story. I hope that that concludes an important chapter, an opening chapter, amongst the service and hospitality workers of northeastern Wisconsin. And the vendors are leading the way. But the rest of the Lambeau Field and Titletown workers and people across Green Bay and northeastern Wisconsin can build on that. Um, and we're very excited as, as MASH to work with these folks uh, up in northeastern Wisconsin and, frankly, anywhere across the state to build the service and hospitality workers union movement. Peter Rickman, Milwaukee Area Service and Hospitality Workers. Thanks for coming on Sly's office, and I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and your listeners, Sly. Thanks for having me. Sly'sOffice.com. Thanks a million. Bye-bye.